In this lecture, we will be treating Rene Descartes. If you remember in the last lecture, we treated Francis Bacon as one of the founders of modern philosophy. And we identified these four features in the great instauration that characterize modern philosophy. They involve a discarding of the entire pre-modern tradition of thought as largely useless, if not harmful. They involve the desire to find some new foundation, a comprehensive refounding of philosophy. Third, they involved a desire to conquer nature, to help human beings. And fourth, they involved the epistemological turn or critical philosophy, that is, this special attention to the problematic nature of our senses in the world. Rene Descartes, his writings possess all of these things. The reading that we will be treating doesn't treat the third of these. That is, in the Meditations on First Philosophy, Descartes does not argue for the controlling and commanding of nature. But what you should know is that Descartes, who is something of a contemporary of Bacon, lived just a few years later, 1596 to 1650 is largely the, the lifespan of, of Descartes, uh, that Descartes in his other writings was very, very interested in both mathematics and science. In fact, unlike Bacon, Descartes actually had some real discoveries in both science and mathematics. More importantly, Descartes fused mathematics and physical science through a new kind of algebraic geometry. I suspect some of you remember studying Cartesian points in your high school math classes. Descartes thought you could take algebra, which we get from the Arab world, and apply it to geometry so that we could mathematize space. So in some sense, mathematical physics begins with Descartes. But that's not our topic here uh, today. Today our topic is Descartes' philosophy and the meditations. One way to think about modern philosophy is as starting with Bacon and then diverging into two paths. One of those paths is called rationalism, and the other path is called empiricism. Descartes represents the rationalist path in philosophy. In the next lecture, we will treat uh, David Hume, who exemplifies to some degree the empiricist path. And then we will see Immanuel Kant at the end of this, who tries to reconcile the rationalist and the empiricist paths and to synthesize them. And we'll consider whether that project succeeds or fails. But here's a hint. Nietzsche thinks it fails, and that's part of the crisis of reason and modern philosophy. So let's talk about Descartes for a moment. In this course, we're going to treat Descartes' meditations on first philosophy. The meditations were written in 1641, and they consist of six short, very first-person reflections on Descartes' philosophical project. Your reading includes only the first two meditations, and they'll give you plenty to think about and talk about. I'm going to treat these first two and say a little bit about what happens afterwards. Descartes begins the first meditation by simply observing how many doubtful opinions he's had in his life. 
And maybe you're like that too. Think about all the things that you thought you once knew that you thought or were certain were true that you later learned to be false. So Descartes thinks, how can I know anything for certain? And so he proposes to himself a method. He proposes what he calls a complete demolition of all of his opinions until he can find something that he knows for certain. He gives himself a rule. I'm going to doubt everything I could possibly doubt and see if there's anything left. That makes sense. If certain doubts are there and you want to find something you know for certain, peel everything else away. And so he gives himself that rule as part of his strategy in the meditations. He proceeds in the first meditation in three stages. He starts with the senses. He observes that his senses have deceived him before. That's stage one. And when someone deceives you, he points out, that usually means they're not credible. They're not reliable. And so you doubt them. Think about a person you knew who consistently told you falsehoods. You would take a position of skepticism with respect to the testimony of that person. Descartes says it's the same with the senses. If they've deceived me before, I should not trust in them. But then the other side of Descartes says, surely you can't doubt that you're sitting here right now writing this book. Surely you cannot doubt that you're sitting in your chair right now watching this video. Yes, the senses deceive sometimes with respect to sticks and water and tracks converging in the distance, but you can't possibly doubt that you're sitting in your chair right now watching this video. Descartes then raises a second stage objection. He says, well, sometimes I've dreamed things that seemed so real that in the dream, I was sure I was in reality until I woke up. So how do I know I'm not dreaming right now? This is a famous dream argument. Could you be dreaming right now that you're watching this video? Now, I'm not asking whether you think you're dreaming, but is it possible that you're dreaming right now, that this is part of a dream? I once thought I had an argument against this. I asked my students, how many of you have ever been dreaming that you were dreaming and in your dream woke up from a dream? Unfortunately, about half my students raise their hands. I don't know what a dream like that looks like, but apparently people have them. So that fails the test. And it's a powerful challenge. I ask you to think about this question. What kind of test do you have for an argument that you are dreaming right now, that you're not dreaming right now, that you're actually in reality? Do you have a test for that? Because it seems like everything you could do in a dream is something you could do in the real world. Now, Descartes, the other Descartes, has a response to that. Descartes, the other Descartes, the objector says, well, here's the thing about dreams. Dreams, from all of our experience of them, at least build on things that are real. So there are people you know. There are experiences you have from your waking state 
that you bring into your dreams. The dreams don't just generate realities out of thin air. Now, they do take things apart and recombine them. You can have a dream of a pink polka-dotted elephant that does not exist in the real world, but your dream state could detach certain things and recombine them. But Descartes suggests at least the basic elements that would go into those productions must be real. What are those? Descartes gives us a review here of something similar that we saw in Bacon. And it corresponds to what in philosophy is called the primary quality, secondary quality distinction. That distinction comes from someone who is a contemporary of Descartes, Galileo. Galileo observes that there are certain qualities that we know are in things. They are observer-independent. Galileo thinks that those things include the shape of things, their size, their extension in space. Even if all observers disappeared, the object would still have its shape, its size, its extension in space. It would still move. But then there are secondary qualities, which are observer-relative, those things we've already talked about. Smell, color, taste, sound. What are those? Galileo was aware that what happens when we hear a sound, for example, is that a sound wave somewhere out there, we call it a sound wave, is emitted and some kind of organ biologically in us translates the sound waves into an experience of sound. Same with vision. We've talked about light waves. The argument is that color is some kind of conversion or translation of those light waves into a visual experience. So if all perceivers disappeared and only the apple was there, there would still be the material things, the light waves perhaps, that make the apple red, but there would be no redness. Redness only exists here. So Descartes suggests, even in my dreams, the most basic aspects of reality would have to be there. He calls these corporeal nature in general, together with extension, shape, quantity. I have to know quantity. There's one apple or two apples. I couldn't be dreaming that, could I? Now notice that the primary qualities are things that are susceptible to measurement. They can be quantified. In fact, Descartes, as I mentioned, his analytic geometry allows for a mathematical measurement of physical space. So Descartes is suggesting a way in which the external world could be subject to mathematical calculation. So his, you know, his, his, uh, the voice that's objecting to his doubt says, there must be external things like number, like quantity, like extension and space. But then the skeptical Descartes 
responds with a third stage of the argument. This is called the evil genius argument. He says, is it possible that there could be some supernatural being that could deceive us into thinking that there is extension, space, and number? He says, we think that there's a God that's, that's omnipotent and omniscient. Why couldn't there be a being that could deceive us? Why couldn't it be the case that while we think we're having all these experiences in the world, in fact, they're simply being projected into our minds, say, by electrodes? If you are of a certain age and you're watching this video right now, you may think immediately of the movie The Matrix. You remember that it begins with the lead character, Neo, having all these experiences which seem normal. And then, over the course of the movie, he discovers that all of those experiences have been stimulated artificially into his mind while he has remained inside a pod. In philosophy, this is sometimes called the brain in the vat argument. And the question is, is it possible that you are merely a brain in a vat and that all the experiences you think of the external world are simply artificial stimulations inside your brain to give you those experiences? It would be similar to sitting, to, to your sitting inside a cave, your mind is inside a cave and you have windows on the cave and you think you see all this reality outside the windows, but actually the windows are simply video projections. So all your life you think, I'm seeing reality through those windows. Your eyes, for example, be in the windows, but it's not out there. Descartes asks, couldn't we be deceived? Could we doubt it? Maybe all of my memories and perceptions of reality are simply put into my mind by an evil genius who deceives me into thinking that I'm actually perceiving reality when really it's like running a movie simply through my brain. After all, that does seem to be the ambition of virtual reality technology, doesn't it? You sit in the chair, you feel the motions, you put on the glasses. It gives you a simulation of reality, but it's not there. So I think we think, with Descartes, doubter, that it's possible. Remember, he's just trying to find something he knows for sure. But then Descartes, the objector, comes back in and says, yes, maybe that's true. But there are a few things that even the evil genius could not deceive me about. Things like basic math. Say, 2 plus 2 equals 4. No evil genius could deceive me about that. I'm reminded here of the character in George Orwell's novel, 1984. He says, I need to hold on to 2 plus 2 equals 4. As long as I can believe that, everything else follows. All of reality follows. As long as I can believe that. But Descartes tells us, couldn't the evil genius even deceive you about that? That's a question. Descartes thinks so. 
couldn't an evil genius tell you two plus two equals four and give you a strong sense that that's false, even when it's true? Descartes's not challenging here whether two plus two equals four. He's simply challenging whether the evil genius could impose beliefs on us that could be false. And not surprisingly, following this line of argument, Descartes ends the first meditation in a bit of an abyss. He begins the second meditation almost in despair. He has demolished through his methodological skepticism, every single plausible belief, he's at sea in doubt. And he's still struggling. Okay, so you've followed his path, and I encourage you to think about where you think he's misstepped. If you think he's misstepped in the first meditation, where is it? Where is the flaw in his argument? Which premise is wrong. Now, in the second meditation, Descartes describes himself, as I said, as being, as, as feeling as though he's fallen into a deep whirlpool. And he uses a really interesting figure of speech. He says, I'm like Archimedes, who is looking for some firm and immovable point in order to move the entire earth from one place to another. That's a remarkable figure. Archimedes, we already talked about earlier with his Eureka bathtub moment. Now we have Archimedes talking about this famous line, give me a place to stand and a lever long enough and I can move the earth. And we wonder if Descartes himself is looking for a similar fixed point to stand by which he might move the earth. And arguably, he finds one in the second meditation. So how does he get out of this whirlpool? Well, he goes back and he asks a series of questions. He says, okay, I am even deceived about basic mathematical truths. That's possible. But then he asks, am I not then at least something? But I've already denied that I have any senses and any body. Still, I hesitate for what follows from this. Am I so tied to a body and to the senses that I cannot exist without them? But I have persuaded myself that there is absolutely nothing in the world. No sky, no earth, no minds, no bodies. Is it then the case that I too do not exist? But doubtless, I did exist if I persuaded myself of something. It's just a basic argument. Descartes expresses it this way, very famously. The famous articulation is, I think, therefore, I am. Cogito ergo sum in the Latin. I think, therefore I am. But what he's leading to here is even a better expression. I am an error. I know nothing, therefore I am. Even if he is deceived by the evil genius about basic math, 
Descartes suggests, I must exist to be deceived. And so, the cogito, or actually ego, the I, becomes the Archimedean point of Descartes' world. Remember what I said in the supplemental video about the school of Athens, the, the modern school of Athens. It would have Descartes pointing to himself in the center of the painting, whereas Bacon would be pointing down. Descartes seeks to reground philosophy on the ego, on the self, on self-knowledge. And from this ego then, this I, which must think, Descartes builds out three or four more things that he must know. I want to go through them with you fairly quickly. But first, I want to ask, what kind of ego is this? What kind of self has Descartes actually found? Notice how abstract it is. He's told us because of the methodological doubt, it doesn't have senses, it doesn't have a body, it doesn't have memory. That's not the ego. It's not the ego that was born in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, uh, to certain parents, had six brothers and sisters, went through life. None of those does that ego know. It knows none of it except that it's an error and so it must exist. Is that a plausible ego? Nevertheless, Descartes makes it his point. And he says, okay, if I know that I must exist, that I know something, one thing about that ego. I know that it's a thinking thing. As long as it's thinking, it must exist. If it ceases thinking, that is self-consciousness. By thinking, Descartes simply means imagining, uh, reflecting on, remembering, even sensing. These are all ways of thinking. As long as it's doing some kind of self-conscious activity, it has to exist. So he says, I am essentially a thinking thing. My very essence is to be a thinking thing. Thirdly, Descartes asks, but how do I know this? How do I know that it must be a thinking thing. And I ask you that same question. My students are often scratching their heads here. They're wondering, this sounds crazy. How did he even get here? Seems so implausible, but I just qu don't quite know where the flaw in the argument is. But some of them on this cogito business smell a rat. Remember Descartes told us that the evil genius could deceive us about 2 plus 2 equals 4. So how do I know then that if I think, therefore I exist? It's all in the therefore. If you put a therefore in there, it sounds like an argument, doesn't it? It sounds like you're reaching a conclusion from a premise. I think, therefore, I am. And that means that you have to assume that logic holds. 
But if the evil genius can deceive you about math, 2 plus 2 equals 4, why couldn't the evil genius deceive you about the validity of a logical inference? I think, therefore, I am. Now, I don't think we could be deceived about the validity of a logical inference, and so I think the argument is a perfectly good one if I think I exist. But Descartes has undermined our ability to trust in that kind of an inference. So, arguably, he's not doubted enough. I think, therefore, I am, assumes a logic that the deceiver could deceive us about, and therefore, by Descartes' own reasoning, I am not warranted in asserting that I know I exist. That is, if you push against Descartes a little bit, it may be that his radical skepticism of the first meditation really does suck him down into that whirlpool. There is no way out. Now, Descartes wants to get out. You've got to read the next five meditations to see how he gets himself out all the way. But I want to observe this. Or maybe Descartes could say, I'm not making an argument. I'm not arguing anything. I'm just know it. I know it. And what he tells us, and this is the third point of the second meditation, he says, how do I know that I think and therefore I am? He says, it's because it is so clear and distinct in its idea that it must be true. And therefore, I know that all things I perceive clearly and distinctly have to be true. Clear and distinct ideas for Descartes become the criterion and measure of what we can say we know for certain. Again, what does clear mean? What does distinct mean? How much clarity or distinctness do we need in order to be certain of it? Descartes, again, seems to be relying upon criterion that are not really supported by the kind of doubt that he throws upon us. Now, I'm going to quickly summarize the rest of the meditations. I'm not going to summarize. I'm just going to tell you what happens there. In the third meditation, Descartes is aware that Just knowing he exists in clear and distinct ideas works doesn't get him very far. None of us can be content with doubting the existence of the material world, of our memories, of our experiences. How do we get back into that world? And so Descartes says, unless I know there's not an evil deceiver, I can't be certain about anything else. So in the third meditation... He makes an argument for the existence of God. And again, most of my students at this point notice that to make that argument, Descartes relies upon the validity of logic that seems to be questionable, given his own assumptions. But Descartes does make a proof, which I think is an interesting proof, that a non-deceiving God must exist. From there... Once he knows that God isn't a deceiver, he's got to give an account of all these other things. How does he work himself 
from a non-deceiving God back into the world of experience, into the body. Descartes notices that, in fact, our senses still do seem to give us false impressions about reality. But he says, that's not God deceiving us. We could only claim God deceives us if we judge that reality is like what our senses tell us it's like. The flaw is not in God, it's in us. It's our judgment. Descartes says, here's a way to avoid deception. Give yourself a rule to never accept anything as true that you don't have a clear and distinct idea of. If you follow that rule, you'll never be deceived. What do those senses do then? If Why are they there? Descartes here speculates and argues that the senses exist for a corporeal nature. They give us a strong belief that there must be bodies out there, corporeal things. And so my thinking self as a substance must somehow be connected to a body substance. The body substance is operates by the senses. The body substance is measurable by mathematics. I am two substances. Very important here. Descartes gives us what comes to be called a substance dualism. Human beings are a composite of a all-mind-spirit substance, which is my essential self, and some kind of material body, which, as Descartes understands it, corresponds to the laws of mathematics and physics. He describes the body as a mechanism, like a clock. The nerves, he gets very detailed. The nerves are like pulleys that sort of transmit information uh, across, from the beginning down to the end, and they connect to the brain somehow. And the body is like a mechanism attached to the thinking substance. The body mechanism, therefore, is determined, it's mechanical, it's bound tightly by deterministic laws, whereas the spiritual substance is free. So now we're in a position to just make a quick assessment of Descartes' legacy. And we've already said what that is. Number one, Descartes gives us strong arguments for doubting the reliability of our senses and the material world and our embodiment. Number two, he gives us a purely rational ground, the ego, a purely immaterial, incorporeal thing on which he can rest an argument for building up the rest of reality. This is, these are two elements of the rationalist uh, strain within modern philosophy. Rationalist because it doubts the sort of contingent material things and tries to build knowledge from the ideas alone. And finally, Descartes gives us a kind of composite picture of reality, that substance dualism, a world in which persons are immaterial thinking substances that are utterly undeterminate, except by their thought and their freedom, 
and then a mechanical, materialistic, deterministic world, which is connected through our bodies. A world that can be measured and, yes, manipulated by that thinking substance. The sort of immaterial self, how does that relate to our bodies? How do we think about ourselves in this context and about nature and about reality? These are big questions that Descartes leaves us with.